Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and now we are going to start our Old Testament series, continuing uh, with Dr. Greg Borgond and Dr. Peter Kapsner. I'm the only non-doctor in the room, <laughs> but if you needed the Heimlich maneuver, I bet I'd be the first guy to step up. <laughs> yeah, no, you you would definitely not have a good chance under my care yeah, when it comes to the Heimlich. You, you yeah, doctor none. clowns couldn't help. Yeah, no, there's no. I don't even know what the diaphragm is. I have no idea. <laughs> exactly. So today we're going to talk about Samuel, a priest, a prophet, and a judge. Greg, welcome. Well, it's good to be here. It's good yeah. to be here. I am very excited to talk about this, and I'm excited for your teaching. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you. You know, um, one of the often forgotten heroes, and there are many in the Old Testament, we seem to go ahead and relegate it to the past and don't pay much attention to it, which is a real shame because we can learn an awful lot from these forgotten heroes. In Samuel's case, which is rare in the Bible, we get to glimpse at how he was brought up from the very, very beginning. Rarely do you get that in, in, in the Bible, but in the case of Samuel, we see his life unfold before us. So, as you said, Bill, he was the last judge of Israel, and of course, before the first king of Israel, which was Saul. And so the question the audience might be asking is, well, why do we need to study the lives of somebody like that? Well, the scripture is clear about it. In Hebrews 13, 7 and 8, we read, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That enough, that first verse is enough to go ahead and compel us to pay attention. But what's interesting is the kinds of leaders we're to pay attention to um, is underscored with with the second verse, which seems almost out of place. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what that's simply saying is, is that the people that we ought to be modeling our life after are those that show consistency, coherence, and congruence in their life on a, on a, on a, a, a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And that certainly is true of Samuel's life. So, but before we actually present some lessons learned from the life of Samuel, I'd like to review maybe a little bit of the historical context and chronology of his life so we can put it into context. With that Sounds okay? good, yeah. All right. Um, First of all, we start with Hannah, his mother. Amazing woman in and of herself. There's lessons we can actually learn from her life as well. She was one of two wives of Elkanah. Uh, His other wife had children, but Hannah did not. And so um, she was concerned about that, obviously, and she prayed about it and prayed incessantly about it. And annually, they would go to Shiloh for an annual sacrifice. So as they were traveling to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was. And just for the sake of clarity for the audience, the tabernacle is, is actually called uh, the dwelling place. It was the portable dwelling of God um, used by the Israelites. So in any case, she prayed for a child. She made a vow to give the child over to serve the Lord. In other words, she was going to release him after being weaned to serve the Lord. And uh, we find that in First Samuel one eleven. So Eli, the priest... Uh, while he was watching her pray, thought she was drunk, <clears throat> and he actually rebuked her. Once she told him what the reason was, um, he understood and he, he blessed her. 
So Eli thought again that she was drunk. He blessed her, and she goes back home, and sure enough, she becomes pregnant. Uh, and she named her son Samuel, which actually means hear of God, or I have asked for him from the Lord, another way of looking at the, uh, what that actually means. So he was born, but he was born and brought up, or the intention was to bring him up as a Nazarite. Now, what a Nazarite was, it meant to be separated and consecrated to the Lord. There's this great passage um, in, num- in uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, that talks all about what a Nazarite is. But let me just give you the highlights of what a Nazarite is. They were allowed no wine or strong drink. That's one thing, nothing like that. But it went even further. No vinegar that was made from wine, no juice of grapes, no seeds or skins of grapes. Uh, No razor was to touch his head. Um, And he couldn't go near a dead body. And if he did, then there was a ritual that they had to go through to purify him, but he couldn't go near a dead body. So he was being raised as a Nazarite. Once he was weaned, and that usually took place in Israel between the ages of two and five, and at this particular case in Samuel's life was probably about four years old uh, when the weaning was completed, he was brought before Eli. He was presented to Eli to serve the Lord again for the rest of his life. So um, interestingly enough, Eli had two sons at that time, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, that were wicked and, and immoral. Both were actually killed in a battle with the Philistines, the perennial enemy, of course, of Israel. In that battle, the Ark of the Covenant was captured and was taken back to Philistia. Upon hearing the news of the death of his sons and that the Ark was captured, Eli keels over and dies. And the Ark, however, just for a side note, was eventually returned after God had inflicted the Philistines with boils, Tumors and hemorrhoids. That's a discipline I wouldn't care for. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Hannah, uh, you know, God is no man's debtor. When he answers our prayers, he always goes beyond what we ask. So, Hannah later has three sons and two daughters. So, Samuel's at least once a year, they would go back uh, to Shiloh, of course, for the annual sacrifice. Um, And she would always take this is so touching to me. She'd always take this robe, a little robe to him every single year. And once she and her husband received the blessing of Eli, they'd, they'd return home. So when you take a look at the life of Hannah, um, I, I drew five things from that. First of all, Hannah turned to God in prayer in her time of need. But it wasn't just one time. It was incessant prayer, unrelenting prayer. Um, secondly, She praised and thanked God when her prayer was answered. Now, I find it interesting. I often ask guys, because I work with men a lot, um, did you get your prayer answered? Well, yeah, I did, and here's what happened. Did you thank God for it? Oh, no, I didn't. Forgot to thank him. Because once it's passed, it's passed for most people. But here, Hannah was very careful to be very, very thankful that God had answered her prayer. The third lesson we learned from Hannah is that she depended absolutely on God. What I found is that dependence on the world produces independence from God. When you're dependent upon God, you become independent from the world. That's a powerful thing when you start to think about it. You're going to be dependent on something. Your choice is what are you going to be dependent upon. So we pick up the number four, the the lesson from her life is she kept her commitment to the Lord. How many times have we made promises to God and we failed to keep the commitment? 
but she uh, she was committed to the Lord. And finally, we learned that God blessed Hannah, as I said, beyond what she asked for, as much like she did with Solomon when he asked for wisdom and God gave him much more. Hmm. Greg, in the story of Hannah, um, which is such a profound story with all the points that you've teased out of that, uh, what would you say in today's day and age when uh, couples are facing infertility? Because this Hannah story is often used as a story uh, of almost like a method by which you can guarantee that you're going to have children moving forward. And, and yeah. I've seen, I think, quite a bit of havoc wreaked in that, that we do want to call upon God in prayer and 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 tell him what our requests are and our deepest desires are. But for but for the ministry of the organization says, if you can just pray like Hannah yeah. and you just pray the right way or with the right earnestness or the right amount of time, you're eventually going to get those kids. And yet, I think we all know the stories of people who didn't end up having kids. So we may need to resist that this becomes a formula as a way of opening people's wombs. Yeah, and, and that's a shame because it, you need to understand um, how God answers prayer. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait. Sometimes you never know until much later in life, and you may never know until you're in his presence. And so that's where trust and faith comes in, that whatever decision is made, I mean, in God's permissive will, um, we can ask for a number of things, and and God can answer them, or he can answer them, or we're told to wait. But the fact of the matter is that we are to show our dependence upon God and our faith in God in those requests, but be satisfied with whatever the answer is. Really good. Really, really I good. I thought you've, added, you've said enough smart things for one day. Well, that's, that's right. Let me ask the smart questions. <laughs> well, if it helps at all, I don't know at all of what Greg is talking about when you forget to thank God after prayer. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I just happened that to be twice to last week. as like, you know, 12 seconds into it, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally forgot already. I, uh, it's just amazing how quickly we forget to be grateful yeah. in that. It happened to me twice in this last week. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're more yeah. relieved. Totally. <laughs> right. Versus oh, yeah. thankful. Yeah, right. very, that's, that's, that's exactly right. right. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> well, I, I got through that one. Right, yeah, right, exactly. Totally. Okay, um, let's go ahead and move into the chronology, picking it up again with, with Samuel. That's a great idea. <laughs> I like that, because we're talking about Samuel today. Are we really? Yeah, I didn't know if you knew that. Peter, did you know that? We're talking about that's Samuel? That's who this... Oh, I had no yeah. idea. But I thought this you is... said you wanted to talk about Samuel L. Jackson. No, no, that's what Peter thought. <laughs> yeah. very, I saw him waiting for the end of the Avengers story right yeah. now, so I'm not sure where we are in the text. I was just thinking before we launch into this, uh, we're so close to taking a break. We'll just take a break, and then when we come back, we'll have a nice uh, block of time to get sure. into Samuel. Absolutely. You are listening to the Old Testament series. Our special guest today is Dr. Greg Borgond, and we're talking about Samuel. Be right back. This is Greg's walk-up song. I did not. Gladiator. I mean, and that is about right. We were saying before he was in the green room that I actually had Greg as a professor, I I think in about 1998 or so. And I left that room. I felt like after he was done talking about life and faith and kingdom and masculinity and leadership, like all of these topics, I was like, I'm ready to be a gladiator. (laughs) I'm sure I'd be terrible at it, but I was absolutely ready for it. (laughs) 
I know dur- during the break we we had a conversation and you were continuing your discussion, Peter, about the Hannah yeah, ministry. Yeah, and I mean, that was uh, very fascinating. Greg, I'd like you to share that. It was really quite the story, Greg, because it's such a tender moment for so many people about just the loss of children and everything, and, and yeah. boy, your story. Yeah, uh, my wife and I have been married for 54 years, uh, but when we were young, when we first married, we got married in 1969, uh, we went through four successive miscarriages where we lost four babies. And I prayed fervently for a child. I grew up in a French family, and the biggest thing you do is is you you raise a family. It's heritage. It's tradition. But just before I left for Vietnam, Debbie became pregnant again. And so I went to Vietnam shaking my pin little fist in the face of God, thinking he was going to take this child too. Seven and a half months later, out the coast of Recife, Brazil, I got a radio message. I had a baby girl. Mm. And so that led to my actual conversion six months later, standing over her crib, thinking what a tremendous gift of God she was, and then thinking about that passage I read as a non-Christian when we were given a RSV Bible by the Presbyterian minister that, and I was always the fool that could ask more questions than a wise man could answer, so I opened it and read three quarters of it and then put it away, but I'm living proof God's Word doesn't return void because I'm standing over her crib, and this phrase kept going through my mind. My gifts are meant to lead you to repentance. My gifts are meant to lead you to repentance. And all of a sudden, the gospel made absolute clear sense to me. In the dark of the night, I dropped to my knees in front of my daughter's crib while she was sleeping, August 11th, 1973, gave my heart, body, and soul to Jesus Christ that night. Wow. So we don't Thank know you for sharing that. Yeah, when God amazing. says, when, when we don't get an answer that we want, what the future might hold. This may not be anybody else's story. It was my story, but it was also framed by a lot of pain and despair and discouragement. And uh, so... Well, and it sounds like your daughter then went on to have some kids, and that even came full circle. Oh, yeah. What happened was is that years later, after the birth of our fourth grandson, um, she stood there and she quoted an Old Testament passage. She said, what the locusts have taken, Dad, God has restored. We lost four babies and God replaced them with four grandsons. That's what the point she was making. Well, you can imagine at that moment, I just wept. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All right, we're talking about Samuel today, and let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's jump into Samuel. All right, Samuel um, lived to be 80 years old in a time when people didn't live that long, uh, from 1094, actually, to 1014 B.C. But he, his job, he worshipped in the temple. He didn't have an intimate personal relationship with God at this point yet, um, but he worshipped in the temple. He, as a matter of fact, there was something unique about this child because he was given his own tunic, normally reserved uh, for priests only, which was also unheard of. So one night, he hears a voice, not just once, but three separate times. And each time he runs to Eli to try and figure out this is all about. Well, Eli knew after the third time it was God probably speaking to him. So Eli uh, said to him um, that he needed to go back and respond to the Lord So he, because he knew it was the Lord that was speaking to him. So the Lord, it, here's what's interesting, guys, is that it says the Lord stood there and spoke to Samuel. So we may have had a theophany or the, uh, some physical manifestation of God's presence in a demonstrative way. To Samuel, could you imagine that as a, as a small person, child? I don't know what age he was at the time, and here Almighty God is standing before you in some mm-hmm. vestige or some image. 
stood there and he spoke to Samuel. But the message wasn't going to be a happy message. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he was given a message of judgment to relate to Eli and Eli and his family. So Eli responded after he was told because it was about his family and what was going to be happening to them with resignation and acceptance. So anyway, Samuel grows up in what's said in Scripture, in the stature and favor in the presence of the Lord. So after Eli's death, Samuel becomes the spiritual leader of Israel. Um, And so he was a prophet, and he was a judge uh, of the nation. And he grew in great credibility as a prophet throughout uh, all of Israel. But as was the case in that time, and the reason for the judges and Samuel being the last judge, there was this cycle of sin that Israel kept repeating that required somebody to save them. And so I'd just like to rehearse quickly what that cycle was, uh, and it's called the cycle of the judges. One is Israel serves the Lord. Israel ultimately falls into sin and slavery. They're enslaved, and then they cry out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel's delivered. Israel then begins serving the Lord, and the cycle Hmm. is repeated all over again. That's just not for the Old Testament. That's for us today. If we really think about it, we repeat that same cycle over and over again, a pattern in our life. Get in trouble. Oh, we make these promises. God rescues us. And, uh, and then we start to lapse again. We start compromising our beliefs on the altar of expediency. And all of a sudden, we're drifting off into places we didn't want to go. And then we don't know how to get out of there. Yeah. Peter, I'm old enough to remember what we talked about last hour. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't this kind of some of the things we discussed? Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, you know, gee, none of this sounds unfamiliar to me at all. You know, it, it is amazing to me how quickly we, we turn aside again. You, you, you get some sort of deliverance or you're caught in some sort of pattern of sin. And, and A, you forget when God bring it, brings deliverance so quickly. But also, too, then you just cycle back in. And what does it mean to keep walking out of life? Uh, where you're you're leaning in consistently instead of forgetting so quickly. Well, I tell men all the time, one of the strategies we use when this happens to us, we wrap the steel band of discipline around our behavior, getting it to conform to some acceptable standard that's kept in place either by the tenacity of our will or the fellowship we keep or the rules we obey. And sooner or life, life cascades in us, that steel band snaps, and we revert back to behavior we thought we had victory mm. over and over. So we repeat that over and over again. And that's similar to this cycle, or at least an aspect of the cycle, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and real freedom comes when you actually begin to change from the inside out, right? When yes. the actual values and dispositions shift, then you're no longer having to do what you describe, putting this band around it, trying to protect yeah. it, play games or pretend, all of that. Yeah, I find it interesting that, that Jesus and God himself has said over and over again that he judges the motives of mm-hmm. men's hearts, because it's the motives that produce the behavior. Matter of fact, it's an interrelationship between our beliefs, our values, our attitudes, and our motives, and our beliefs, our central beliefs establish our values. Our values inform our worldview. Our worldview conditions our motors. Our motors energize our behavior. And our behavior and the trends in our behavior will reflect the health of our heart every single time. Mm, you are the one who taught me that to, to guard your wellspring. Or yeah, guard your heart, yeah. guard your guard heart your for it heart. is the wellspring of Above your life. Above all else, you, you guard just your hammer heart. that into us. Oh, and so you guard right. your heart and the wellspring that flows from yeah, it yeah. Is, is real wellspring. That's absolutely right. So Israel is instructed to be rid of false gods they've been worshiping. And so under Samuel's leadership, of course, and God's power, the Philistines are overcome. So a time of peace is enjoyed by Israel. So God continued to reveal his word to his people through Samuel. So Samuel was, again, the last of the judges, considered by many, by the way, as the greatest judge. 
was cited alongside Moses and Aaron as um, men who call on God and were answered, according to Psalms 99.6. Later in Israel's history, when the Israelites were living in disobedience to God, the Lord declared they were beyond even the defense of Moses and Samuel. Wow. If those two can't intercede for you, you're in deep trouble. (laughs) Two of Israel's greatest intercessors, of course, that's in Jeremiah 15.1. Contemporary was—it's uh, interesting. Also, it was a contemporary of Samson during that same time, so that kind of puts it into a, a, a neat uh, time frame. So, in any case, he's—he anoints the next uh, the, the the nation's first two kings, of course, Saul and David. Now, Samuel's sons Joel and Abijah were appointed as judges by Samuel, but <laughs> the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like Eli's sons, Samuel's sons sinned before the Lord. They were seeking, it says in Scripture, dishonest gain, and they were perverting justice. That doesn't happen anymore, though. Or wait, (laughs) maybe it does. (laughs) (laughs) So Samuel's old, and his sons didn't walk in his ways, and everybody's getting worried. Because what happens when Samuel dies? So the elders of Israel insist on a king like other nations. In 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 5. So he was displeased about that. He didn't have happy feet about that at all. He, uh, God told Samuel that Israel wasn't rejecting him. They were rejecting God. And so God gave them over. It's interesting in Revelation, or not in Revelation, but in the book of Romans, it said three times God gives you over. God gives you over. In other words, if you insist on living your life on a horizontal plane, devoid of any vertical relationship with your heavenly Father, God will give you over to your desires and know full well what the consequences are going to be because he's given us this amazing gift called permissive will. So we make these decisions, and God says, all right, if that's the way you want to live with your life, I release you, mm-hmm. knowing full well that what's going to happen as a result of it. So in any case, he's displeased, so God gave them over, and, uh, and then to the consequences. And there's a passage um, in First Samuel 8, verse 6 through 21. Yeah, that's kind of a longer passage, and I think based on the fact that we're going to be out of time here in 90 seconds, I'm going to encourage listeners to open up their Bible to First Samuel chapter 8, and you can read uh, verses 6 through 21. Yep, there you go. And that will be a way that when we come back, you will know exactly where Greg's going with this as we continue our study of Samuel. And this is the Old Testament series that hosted by uh, Dr. Peter Kaffner and I, and we love this series. We've got so much more to learn about Samuel today, but just... People from the Old Testament. It's been a fascinating study. So when we come back, we'll continue our study of Samuel with Dr. Greg Borgon. And if you uh, are new to Faith Radio and you are just uh, learning about us, we're so glad that you are starting to listen. And I hope that you are learning lots. And if you've not downloaded the app on your phone, you can do that in in your uh, Apple or your Android. All you have to do is look look for MyFaithRadio.com and you can download the app and you can just find all the content that we're talking about today right there on the app. And you can also go to the webpage, MyFaithRadio.com, and you can go to the Afternoon with Bill show page. And if you hear a show today you want to hear again or if you want to send it to a friend, you can do it right there. So we'll take a break and be right back.
show if you just got in your car you're missing out we're talking about samuel today in the old testament series dr greg borgon and dr peter capster we're having a great discussion one of the passages we asked you to look over and if you're in your car of course you can't do this but it's first samuel chapter 8 verses 6 to 21 uh, greg maybe you can summarize yeah. what that is yeah what that passage deals with is um what Samuel was warning him about actually what God was warning him about if you decide you want a king instead of me Here's what the king is going to demand of you. Understand that. Now, the reason that they wanted a king is because, first of all, uh, Samuel's sons were profligates, and they, they knew that they weren't going to follow in Samuel's footsteps. And because they had repeated the cycle we had talked about, the cycle of judges, and knew that it was probably coming again, they want to be like other nations who had kings that will protect them. So that's what they were demanding. And as as the scripture says, it wasn't a rejection of Samuel, it was a rejection of God. But again, God released them to their decision, knowing full well they would end up suffering the consequences of it. But that's the only way that they'd understand. Mm. All right. All right. So we'll we'll continue on with the chronology here because we'll ultimately get to the lessons that are learned from Samuel's life. So Saul a Benjamite, was anointed by Samuel as Israel's first king. So after anointing Saul as the first king of Israel, much to Samuel's to a disapproval, he delivers his farewell speech, uh, disapproval of, of, of the fact that they selected a king. He delivers his farewell speech to the people of Israel. That's found, if you want to read that, it's found in 1 Samuel 12, verse 1 through 25, another long passage, but it, it really is worth reading. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage you that are listening here in the audience to take the time to read that. It, it'll give you some real insight into the heart of Samuel. So Saul was eventually rejected by God because of repeated disobedience. He, and, and here are some of the things that, that, that Saul did. I mean, you have to really do a lot to be rejected by God. And Saul filled the bill. He had he uh, was unauthorized sacrificial offerings he was involved in. He failed to eliminate the Amalekites as directed. He actually spared the king and some of the livestock and and, and then used this terrible excuse, well, let's bring the livestock as an act of worship to God. <laughs> and uh, he lied to Samuel. Bad news. Don't do that. Don't lie to Samuel. He lied to Samuel and therefore to God. God withdrew his spirit from Saul. At that time, the Holy Spirit, of course, didn't take up permanent um, abode in, in, the, in, the, in the souls of human beings. So he removed his spirit. Um, and after doing so, Samuel never saw Saul again, but mourned and prayed for him. So Samuel warned Saul that he was actually going to, to be replaced. So during the, the remainder of his reign, he was plagued by an evil spirit, that is Saul. He experienced fits of madness, and we can read about that. He tried to kill God's successor, David, several times, and finally died with his son, Jonathan, on Mount Gilboa in the battle with the Philistines. Mm. And uh, that was the legacy of his life. You know, I tell men all the time, legacy is the aroma left in the nostrils of those God's called you to influence long after you're gone. And many of us are going to leave a stench. Mm. And so Paul, or in this case, I mean Saul, is leaving a stench. So we pick it up again. Uh, So then, so we're going to talk about the second king that's anointed now, which is David. So Samuel 
visits the house of Jesse, who had eight sons. Now, mistakenly, um, he thought Eliab, the first son, was God's anointed because of his appearance and demeanor. It actually says his height. I've always felt that height's overrated, you know. <laughs> he had lots of hair, and if they could see me, they'd see I don't have much. So I always felt that that was kind of <laughs> overrated. But anyway, we do that today. We pick our leaders by how they look, man or woman, and very rarely by the substance of, of what they say. So Samuel falls into that trap, and he says, surely this is God's anointed. But God informs Samuel right there, after the first one is imprinted in front of him, that man looks at appearance and height, but he looks at the heart and always looks at the heart, the fountain, the core of our, our very being. So you read that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 through 7. Do you want to read that passage or should we move on? Um, yeah, we can read it. It'll take me... Uh... Six and a half minutes to find it. <laughs> well, and Greg, it is fascinating because by contrast, my understanding is Saul really did have all of that outward appearance that we would be initially drawn to in terms sure. of having a leader. So yeah. he, he was really great in battle. He was a great commander. Yeah, indeed. And yet there is this, God was looking for something very different in, in his kingdom. Yeah, okay, absolutely. I'm ready. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? <laughs> Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw uh, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. So David, the youngest son, he's anointed king of Israel. He actually didn't assume the formal role of kingship for a few years later. But Samuel dies before David is formally made the king, actually. So um, he was unable to lead his sons into a close relationship with God, uh, Samuel. Um, but he is listed, interestingly enough, in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So what are the lessons that we can actually learn uh, from the life of Samuel? Well, number one, prayer is the bridge we must cross for influence and empowerment. Samuel and his mother, for that matter, they were prayer warriors. So the Bible contains nearly 50 lengthy prayers recorded in prose sections and several hundred shorter prayers uh, or references to praying. So mighty men of God, mighty women of God are prayer warriors. Bottom line. So it's interesting enough that my second grand or third grandson, um, Galen, who is my uh, goodness and integrity boy, uh, at a very young age, something is very unique about my grandson. They were walking down an aisle in Cub, and they passed two older women, and one was weeping. And as my grandson and wife turned the corner, 
And as she started down the next aisle, she turned around and Galen's gone. And she went around and looked and he's with these two women. And he's patting this older woman <laughs> on the back and asking if he could pray for her. Oh wow. Wow. That's my that was my grandson. That's, That's powerful. My grandson. So he's my goodness and integrity boy. Not all prayers require words, however. You can pray by just simply being aware of God's presence. You can be have an attitude of worship and posture, uh, the way in which you conduct yourself in the workplace, um, the reflections that you have can be a constant prayer, kind of like Brother Lawrence years ago as this monk who washing dishes was in the presence of the Lord. He was praying constantly, but it wasn't verbal all the time. It was just being aware of God's presence, aware of his nature, and so forth. It's a great mm-hmm. little book, Practicing the Presence, presence of God. God. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in Romans 12, 2, it says, or 12, 12, it says, Be joyful in hope, patience in affliction, faithful in prayer. Mm-hmm. So that's the first lesson I love it. that we learn from the life of Samuel. The second is, the significance of what leaders accomplish is directly related to the relationship with God. So I tell leaders when I train them oftentimes, I said, you guys, some of you uh, men or women might be intuitive leaders, reluctant leaders, taught leaders. uh, But whenever you go ahead and make a decision on behalf of somebody else, you're leading. But the fact of the matter is that um, when you do lead, um, I can fairly well, if you're practicing a method, a strategy, a methodology, um, predict what the outcome is going to be. It's going to be linear and additive. But when you take that same process, that same strategy, and put it against a backdrop, a biblically informed character, all of a sudden the results are exponential and logarithmic. Mm. So it matters that you're directly related, that your relation is vibrant with God, because he's the one that will infuse whatever you do uh, with significance and importance. And so... This lesson we learned from Samuel was something we need to uh, understand for ourselves. Samuel maintained a vibrant relation with God right up to the end. So significance and meaning can only come from the Creator who gives meaning and significance to our lives. So significance, in my view, is more important than success. A life of significance is attained by living a legacy worth leaving in the lives of others within our sphere of influence. The only legacy worth living really is a godly legacy. We can be no legacy, which is a legacy. Nobody even know you walked this earth. You can be a philanthropist, which I'm not against. Much of what we're experiencing right now is because of somebody's philanthropy, and that's a great thing of giving. Or they can erect a statue in your name. I remember addressing a bunch of businessmen in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who were Christian businessmen who were responsible for renovating the inner city of Chattanooga. And I said, if they erect a statue in your name, chances are it'll serve as a perch for pigeons within the first three weeks of its construction. (laughs) And I went on to tell him about the four types of legacies. And then I finally said to him, the only legacy worth leaving of any eternal consequence is a godly legacy. And Greg, I mean, our our decisions that we make as we follow Jesus in this world, they really are generational kinds of decisions. I mean, sometimes we think of discipleship as more of a sort of a, a inspired, Holy Spirit-infused self-help program. And, 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 and clearly we do come into greater wholeness in our lives, but when you're describing the legacy left behind, our decisions to follow and to grow in faith really is something that moves generationally then from there. Oh, yeah. I mean, God will expand your direct influence, your indirect, and your organizational influence. When you start to understand 
that a godly legacy is something worth striving for. God will give you a venue that will blow your mind mm. in which to minister. For some unfathomable reason, again, finite God has chosen as infinite creatures to facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. Go figure, mm. because if you and I were in the decision seat, we wouldn't choose us. Yeah. All right, so that God does have a prescription for significance. We have a destiny to fulfill. None of us are here by mistake or happenstance. Um, we're not, we're not uh, here just by uh, chance at all. That it says in Psalm 139 that God superintended our formation in our mother's womb. He knew us before we ever were, and he set the number of days we'd walk this earth. We were on the heart of God before we ever came to be. Ephesians 2.10 says that God has prepared in advance a purpose for our life, a unique purpose. So we have a destiny to fulfill. We have a contribution to make. We have a ministry to complete, and we have a legacy to leave. Mm. That's significance. So number three, the third lesson that we get from the life of Samuel the kind of person we are is more important than anything we might do. Hmm. It was Neil Anderson in Freedom of Christ Ministries who said, and I've never forgotten, he says, it's not what you do that determines who you are. It's who you are in Jesus Christ that should determine what you do. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So Samuel's character spoke louder than his accomplishments. And here's something for Western culture. And again, I tell this to men all the time. Nobody really cares what you have to say. <laughs> so get over it. Nobody cares what you have to say. Until thanks, Greg. They observe. <laughs> it's going to make an awkward two hours tomorrow. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Present company excluded. <laughs> Nobody cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. Mm. And if you live a life of integrity and honor under God's authority, people will finally listen to what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? Because they cannot get past a life well lived. Mm. They can deconstruct your faith system. They can argue with what you believe is truth. What they can't argue with is a life well lived. I think we take one more break and we'll be back as we continue our study on Samuel with Dr. Greg Borgon and Dr. Peter Kapsner. I'm loving this. We'll be right back. Dr. Greg Borgon, Dr. Peter Kapsner, we're talking about Samuel, and they have um, told me I should read this poem by Edward Guest. So, it was a great, but we, we sat riveted during I know the you break. Did. This is I know great. You this is so great stuff my, you're about to read. My Shakespearean, Shakespearean voice ready here. I have bated yeah. breath right now. <clears throat> All right, it's called Sermons We See. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell me the way. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counseling is confusing. But examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are those who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is exactly what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. 
That yeah. is brilliant. Yeah, that, that's a great illustration of this third lesson we learned from the life of Samuel. The kind of person we are is more important than anything that we might do. But in this case, when we talked about the fact that nobody cares what we have to say until they observe how we live, that's that's a perfect poem for that that illustrates that. Thanks mm-hmm. for sharing that. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, the fourth lesson that we learn from the life of Samuel, God is our salvation, not any authority in this world. Samuel answered to one authority, God. Like Rick Warren says, he lived his life for an audience of, of one. So in Ephesians two nineteen through 22, we read, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises and becomes a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Philippians 3.20, we see this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not be considered alien and strangers in the kingdom of God, but it says in scriptures, we're alien and strangers and sojourners on this earth. But it doesn't mean that we live in a Christian ghetto, tie verses around a rock, throw it over the transom, hope it's a non-Christian, and they receive Christ, because God calls us in the world to minister to the world for the sake of the world, but not be of the world. Mm. We should be different from the world. We should be representing the fruit of the Spirit, which is the character that's the heart of God, the values that matter, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when that fruit is evidenced by how we live, people take notice. So... Um, that's what we learned, that we're citizens of heaven. We're under a new constitution. We're under a new code of conduct. And we should be living for and giving our allegiance to our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, our King. So that's what Samuel did. He lived his life for an audience one. The fifth one uh, lesson that we learned is outward appearances are deceiving. God looks at the heart. Samuel accepted God's correction. Samuel thinking that Eliab was it. But God corrected him, as Bill shared. So Proverbs 4.23 is one of my favorite passages. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it comes the wellspring of your life. Whatever is in there, good or bad, will manifest itself in overt behavior over time that will either bring glory and honor to God or dishonor and shame. It matters what's in your heart. And so if we spend all of our time in sanctified behavior modification without going to the source of our problem, beliefs, our values, our attitudes and motives, and make those corrections, not only through confession, but replacement with truth, and start to live in accordance with the truth. Our behavior won't change. It may be temporary, depending on our discipline and our capacity to carry on a persona for a given period of time, but sooner or later, we'll revert back to our true selves. Proverbs 16.2 says, All man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So the sixth lesson we learn is God looks for fat leaders. This is the only time you don't have to go on a diet. (laughs) Faithful, available, and teachable. Fat leaders, faithful, available, and teachable. Samuel was faithful, he was available, and he was teachable. God uses leaders who depend on him. Independence from him, as I said earlier, results in dependence on the world. Dependence on him produces independence from the world. 
So God looks for leaders who are faithful, available, and teachable. The seventh lesson that we learn is God speaks to those who listen. Samuel listened to the voice of God from an early age. And so God can be heard through his word. He can be heard through the Holy Spirit. He can be heard through his creation. So God also uses destiny processing to shape his leaders. For instance, awe-inspiring experiences that can only be attributed to God, which represent God's special anointing, uh, indirect or other people's influence, providential circumstances when you, when you actually look at them in a more objective way, and God's blessing over time, which can't be forgotten. Again, being thankful not only for prayer, but for the many blessings he brings in our life. And the last lesson we learned from the life of, of Samuel, it's, I'm sure there are many more, but the eight that I was able to extract in my research on Samuel, there is no shortcut to finishing well. There's no shortcut. There's no pill you can take. Um, there's just no shortcut. Samuel finished the journey well. Now, here's what finishing well means. My mentor, uh, J. Robert Clinton, um, he defines finishing well this way. He says, these leaders, and, and you don't have to be a leader to finish well. We're talking about any follower of Jesus Christ to finish well. People um, uh, were walking with God at the end of their lives. They contributed to God's purposes at a high level. They fulfilled what God had, uh, had them, uh, for them to do. And some examples, of course, are Abraham, Job, Joseph, and certainly Samuel and others. So finishing well. Dr. Clinton defines finishing well as referring to reaching the end of one's life, having been faithful to the calling God has placed upon that life. It is about Christ followers being more passionate about Christ and his mission as they fulfilled their life purposes than they were at the beginning. It also entails a life that experiences the depth of God's grace and love. It is living out one's destiny and the making of one's unique and ultimate contribution in expanding God's kingdom. So uh, that's what we learn from the life of Samuel. And so even some of that research of my mentor talked about characteristics when he studied the lives of uh, historical or biblical uh, Christians, uh, historical Christian leaders, and even contemporary Christian leaders using grounded theory methodology and 3,500 case studies. They extracted um, what they felt were principles for finishing well, that each of the people who finished well, and by the way, only three in 10 did, mm-hmm. regardless of what group you were looking at, they might 30% average might be great in baseball, 300%, but it's not good in God's kingdom. But anyway, these characteristics, they demonstrated one or more of them. They were spiritually vibrant. They were lifelong learners. They were Christ-like in their behavior. They were faithful and obedient. They understood the power of legacy, and they knew they had a destiny to fulfill. They were driven by their destiny. So, in conclusion, what I want to share is, um, here's a key verse from the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-two. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So God expects our obedience. That's how we show our love. Our children may say, I love you, Dad, and be totally disobedient. And we desperately say at a moment of weakness, say, if you just do what I told you to do. But that's what God is really saying to us. If you do what I tell you to do, 
That's how you demonstrate your love to me. So the questions to ponder I would leave with your audience are these. What is your relationship with God? Is it distant? Is it stagnant? Or is it vibrant? What are you going to do about it? Will you wait on God or will you expect God to wait on you? To whom do you belong? To whose allegiance are you attached to? What is God calling you to do? Will you listen? Will you be faithful, available, and teachable? What are you doing now to ensure you will finish well? And finally, will you be a Samuel? Mm. Mm. <laughs> oh, what a great lesson, Greg. Yeah. That was outstanding. There's so much in all of that. Well, I mean, I have to listen to it like seven times. Yeah, I mean, that's... any one of those eight things, truly, there's all like really deep and rich principles to there, walk out yeah, your life by. There was many times I wanted to stop and, and just marinate in one of your points, but <laughs> I wanted you to you know continue through the material because sure. you were are so beautifully prepared the way you uh, presented this. So thank you for that. And I have never, ever problem going back and listening again. No. A second or a third time. No, it's a great thing to I, go I back want to. to learn. I'm a, I'm a learner. You're a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. You're one of those characteristics, yeah, I'm trying Bill. to be. You're fat, Bill. You're fat. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, right? The, the, the spiritual good kind, right? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> All right, I'm done with you clowns, all right? <laughs> <laughs> that's super fair. <laughs> that's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And Peter, thanks for being here both hours. No, it's been a blast. Thank you, Peter. Just an so good. Blast, yeah. So fun. And I uh, love being with you today. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith Radio. I look forward to our time tomorrow. Guide Talk will uh, resume and Dr. Marcus Bachman is joining me so it's going to be another wonderful show. See you tomorrow, everyone. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.